the, the heart of the whole Anapanasati teaching. If we really understand that, that from breath moment to breath moment, everything is changing. According to the Buddha, we can get free. This simple observation, when thoroughly experienced, and everything that comes out of the thorough experience of this observation, is revolutionary. Put another way, we've gotten ourselves into this mess as persons, as countries, as a planet, through unawareness, through ignorance, through ignoring what's actually happening, through ignoring the most obvious and simple facts. Like that everything that arises passes away, changes. And so the whole logic of his teaching is if we've gotten ourselves into this mess by ignoring everything, perhaps if we now start to pay attention, we can correct matters. If you recall, <clears throat> last time we were talking these things over, I went through all 16 contemplations in a very brief way and said that uh, tonight we would go into a, a condensed or brief or short version which will actually be the next set of meditation instructions for the rest of the retreat. Essentially, to refresh your memory, we're encouraged to become aware of the body, to become familiar and intimate in our understanding of the functioning of the body. The breath, of course, being part of the body and a central element in the body. Similarly with feelings, coming to know our feelings. Coming to know the mind itself, all the different mind states that visit us. That's the third set of four. And finally, dharmas, the, the lawfulness itself. The lawfulness that uh, runs through everything that we've covered. And before we go into the, uh, the shorter method, uh, it's important that you know what the longer one is. The longer one would be to go through these 16 contemplations. Uh, typically, we spend a long time on the first four because it's in the first four that we get concentrated and calm as we become adept at being with the breath continuously. This. Uh, strengthens and calms the body, stabilizes it, brings forth joy and peace, which is very inspiring, encouraging us to practice, to understand that watching the breath is not a trivial thing, but easily worth our best time and effort. 
and we get to know feelings thoroughly. So after the first four, which calm and concentrate the mind, uh, the remaining twelve can go much more rapidly. Not that I want to put you on a racetrack, quite the contrary. In fact, uh, one of the exchanges I had with Buddha Dasa, he was concerned, probably correctly, that I'd be like a typical American. And he said, uh, don't view these 16 contemplations as, as steps that you have to climb to get to the end of some wonderful goal, because then you're just going to hurry and run after it. But rather see them, see them as 16 lessons unlocking secrets of life that you'll practice for the rest of your life. It's not like a, a master's degree program or a PhD program or a law, getting a law or medical degree and a curriculum that you go through. And even though the 16 contemplations are related, they're not random. They unfold, uh, there's a logic to it, in a kind of systematic, progressive way, going from the most coarse and accessible to the most refined and difficult to grasp and to learn about. And they certainly are something that you do for the rest of your life. Uh, to make that clear, even the Buddha, there's one story where the Buddha, well after his enlightenment, he was already the Buddha, that means the supreme enlightenment, Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. So that's, you know, that's. and he disappeared for a few months. And when he came back, someone wanted to know what he did. He went on a self-retreat. I think he was tired of all the squabbles of the monks and listening to their stories. <laughs> so he went off and he did a three-month retreat by himself. And I said, well, what did you do? What did you practice for those three months? And he said, Anapanasati. I said, but you're the Buddha. Why do you have to sit and practice, be aware of the breath? As if that's for beginners. And the Buddha said, oh, it's not about that. It's just a great way to live. And any of you who have tasted even a little bit of this understand that it doesn't have to be seen as a means to an end, but actually the time that, you're, that you spend living in some degree of peace and joy, and remember that grows as, as the practice grows. That's your life in those moments. It's not that uh, we're mortgaging something in order to, to get the real thing later on. This is it. <laughs> this is a good way to take care of right now. The short way, to give you a short statement for the short way, is just two steps. All 16 are condensed into two steps. One, calm and concentrate the mind however you do that, using the breath. When the mind becomes reasonably calm and concentrated, investigate and see that everything, no matter where you look, if it arises, it must also it will also disappear. If it appears, it must disappear. That's it. And this is what uh, leads to the letting go that, that brings us to freedom. Um, the last four, which we ended with, if you recall, the crucial one is number 13, 
and we really could spend the whole retreat on even talking about this one. 13 simply says, paraphrased, um, with each in-breath, I contemplate the emptiness of all, of all phenomena. With each outbreath, I contemplate the emptiness, or the impermanence, excuse me. Scratch that, impermanence. I contemplate the impermanence of all phenomena. So this sounds like what you're doing is breathing in and breathing out and noticing that everything is impermanent. And, and, that, uh, and then it goes from that into letting go, fading away, letting go, and finally uh, liberation. Well, what happened to dukkha and anatta? That is, for those of you who are newer to these teachings, the three signata, that is the uh, somewhat more technical meaning of vipassana or insight, is insight into impermanence, insight into unsatisfactoriness, insight into not-self. Those three are authentic vipassana when we begin to see that. And yet there's only one listed, impermanence, and then it moves on to what the contemplation of impermanence will do. Uh, for those of you who may at some point want to read the Buddha, there's a certain convention that he himself laid out. You should know it and that will help you understand his 13th contemplation. Uh, he said uh, when he uses the term uh, impermanence along with uh, unsatisfactoriness or suffering and as well as uh, not-self, uh, anicca, dukkha, anatta, then each one means exactly that. The first one means impermanence, the second one means uh, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, and the third means not-self. But when he uses just impermanence alone, doesn't use the other two, that stands for all three. And there's a very important reason why it does, and this is the, the point of this contemplation. If we can thoroughly and deeply understand impermanence, that means we need to gain a, a vivid, compelling, really convincing insight into impermanence. We, really, it's gotta be, it's, we already know that everything is impermanent. Is there anyone here who doubts that? Uh, if, you, if you did, you'd probably be embarrassed to say you did. But <laughs> in, a, in a Buddhist center, somebody who thinks that things are permanent, <laughs> or that everyone's happy, or... <laughs> Or that it's great to have an ego. I mean, I don't think you would have gotten in the, in the door. We don't let people like that register. <laughs> Too disruptive. And the teachers would just die of exhaustion. So we know it, but we don't know it. So we have to really know it. And what's being said is, as you really see what impermanence is, 
through first-hand, direct observation in a sustained way, you begin to see that whatever, if there is unsatisfactoriness in life, it really is embedded in the impermanence. It, it comes right out of change. Not only that, so does the, the absence of a solid self come out of that. So in a sense, the uh, unsatisfactoriness or suffering, dukkha, and the absence of a core self, a solid, subsisting, enduring entity, anatta, they're just deeper understandings of impermanence. They're deeper expressions of this one fundamental truth. Just think about it for a moment. If we start to see, well, what is it that's impermanent and what is it that we'll be asked to see in the sutra, in our practice that's impermanent? In our practice, we'll be looking at our own mind and body, of course. But what is it that's impermanent? Everything and anything. As the Buddha said, it's like the taste of the ocean. It's always salty. No matter where you take a drink, it'll always be salty. And here, in reality, wherever you take a drink, it's always going to taste, have the taste of impermanence. Uh, that means that, for example, a very small fact, we all uh, get older and we get sick and we die. That's one expression of impermanence. That's suffering, isn't it? Or certainly for most of us it is. It can be very much, a great deal of suffering. So that means uh, life doesn't stay the same. Uh, we don't remain children forever. We don't remain adolescents forever and so forth. And finally, uh, the body decomposes altogether, one way or another. So that's the law of impermanence. Now, every step along the way, the body uh, goes through lots of difficulties, doesn't it? A lot of pain. Why? It keeps changing. It changes in ways, not, not always ways that we understand, or certainly that we approve of, but this body is changing. When you do a retreat like this, how can you miss the fact that it's changing from moment to moment? Just simply the sitting is comfortable, uncomfortable, and so forth. So the, the body is constantly changing, and we don't have control over, over these conditions of change. Perhaps we can delay aging a bit by the way in which we care for ourselves, eating properly, exercise, and you know, all, everything. That's now, I think, everyone knows about. But finally, whether it's at uh, 60 or at 102 or whatever, at some point the system wears down and the law of impermanence uh, just in a very impersonal way works. So this law is very powerful. You can't buy your way out of it. No matter how brilliant you are, how handsome or beautiful, you can't seduce this law. If you were to be the most political power on the planet, there's nothing you can do. You can have soldiers surrounding you. The, <laughs> the law just keeps working. And it works on the soldiers, too. <laughs> Actually, if we all saw this, there'd be no need to kill each other off. We're going to go anyway. <laughs> it's going to happen naturally anyway. What's all the fuss? But we can't wait. <laughs> we can't wait for the natural process. And so 
as if at least some of us are going to live forever, we get involved in these what are called wars. Small ones, in-between ones, and big ones. That's just the body we're talking about. So you can see that the fact that the body is constantly changing. A lot of energy, not, enough, not a lot of energy. It's tired, it's got too much energy, not enough energy. It wants to go to sleep, but it can't. It wants to be awake, but it can't. Uh, just endless conditions of the body. And so many of them are out of our control. The bladder fills up, and we have to empty it. This will change. We eat food, then we have to empty that. Then we have to fill up again, then we have to empty it again. <laughs> then our teeth are clean, then they get dirty again. <laughs> and then we clean them again, and we dirty them again, and we clean them again, and dirty them again. It can be pretty tedious. <laughs> Unless you have either a sense of humor or you're mindful. Ideally both. We haven't even gotten to the mind yet. And the mind is constantly changing. Right? You've seen, you've had to, even though officially we're just working on the breath, how could that be? I mean, the mind is getting in there all the time. And the mind is constantly changing. It's, the way it changes is even more than the body. Just so subtle and over and over. And, uh, it's never the same. Our attitudes, our likes, our dislikes, our moods. Our, we want to stay here. We love it. We hate it. We feel committed. We don't feel committed. We do feel committed. <laughs> we like that person. Now we don't like that person. Now we do like that person. We grow up with someone. They're our best friends. Their mind goes in one direction. Our mind goes in another direction. We can't talk to each other. Wait a minute. What about those years in junior high and high school? Down the toilet. We have, we don't have, we have nothing to say to each other. One person's interested in X, the other person's interested in Y. What happened? The mind changes. The body changes. Then we meet other minds and other bodies that are also changing. We get involved with them. Do I have to spell it out? <laughs> We even try to live with some of these bodies and minds that are constantly changing while ours is constantly changing. And bring new little bodies and minds into the world <laughs> that are constantly changing. So, all you have to know, if you see, whoa, right. You just know that everything is changing. You know a lot. In fact, when you look at suffering, typically you can see very often what's happened is it's changed. We're separated from things that we love, that we want to, to be there. We're separated from them. Everything that comes together seems to go apart. If something is assembled, then it must disassemble. It scatters. If you build something up, like a building, at some point it has to come down. Andrew? <laughs> Sorry, personal joke. It's a... He helps build things. When we meet, we come together, we also must, we must go apart. Start to look and you'll see. Wherever you look, you can see it. it's, it's in nature, of course. Even if we're true that we would stay the way we want to be, everything around us is changing. It's too cold, now it's too hot. Before it was too cold.
So there's just an ocean of impermanence. It's just this process. Now, then the third, so that's dukkha. You can see how dukkha is, a, in a sense, a more profound understanding of change. It's one more implication of the fact that everything that arises passes away. And in a similar way, it's not that impermanence leads to anatta, to, to, to uh, not-self, but rather it is not-self. That is, if everything is changing, how can you have a notion of an enduring core, a somebody? How could that be? It makes no sense. So that the moment you start to study impermanence, particularly as you start to see your own mind, uh, if you're willing to look and listen, it becomes very clear that there's a whole society inside there, you know, of just endless changing attitudes and views and, and moods and so forth. So out of that 13th contemplation, it's not necessary to mention anything but impermanence. Because if we penetrate into that, and that's what Vipassana is, deep seeing, taking the, the sati, the mindfulness that we've developed in all the other steps, using the breath, using the body, using feelings, observing the mind states themselves, becoming more familiar with ourselves, a bit more development in terms of self-understanding, self-knowledge. And now, beginning to look at those forms, everything that we've already covered. Technically, what that means, for example, um, for our meditation practice. When you get to step 13, uh, which is now, uh, remember if we use the short method, first get calm, and then with that calm, just investigate. And notice that whatever it is that you look at, it arises and passes away. As you begin to do that, you may also see a certain unsatisfactoriness because of that. And very important, which I hope to spend much more time on in the, the, throughout the retreat, uh, we begin to get an understanding of the real meaning of personal identity. What is that? What is a self? Not so much as a theory, but your actual, from your actual observation. So when you, uh, let's say if you're doing it in a classical way and you've become familiar with everything up to step number 12. If you recall particularly uh, step number 9 where you thoroughly go into the mind itself and you begin to see greed, hatred, and delusion. The three kilesas, defilements, toxins, so central in the Buddhist teaching. And you become a bit more experienced with them. You learn how to be with them, how to be with the mind that is craving and wanting, how to be with the mind that's aversive, how to be with the mind that's confused. Well, now, now that we've gotten to, to, the, to pure vipassana, pure insight work, we can, uh, and this is one way to, to do it, we can go back to step one, which was uh, seeing an in, a long breath, we know that the breath is long, in or out. Seeing short breath, we know that the breath is short. The qualities of the breathing. You remember we had a guided meditation where I was asking you to kind of kind of probing, helping you to probe. Is the breath deep or shallow? Is it 
coarse or fine, the qualities of breathing. And it seems like some of you are, were able to do that and to see that the breath really has a quality to it. Each breath has a certain quality to it. Well, now, when we come back, uh, we apply the, the impermanence as the frame of reference, and we, uh, let's say you, you go to the breathing, and I will, we will do that. We'll do it in a, a guided meditation after breakfast tomorrow, but you're welcome to start any time. Some of you have already been doing it. And let's say you're with an in-breath from its inception till its end. An in-breath, at some point, first there's nothing, then an in-breath comes, and then it starts to fade and then disappear. And then there's a pause, perhaps, and then an out-breath begins, and then it disappears. Tracking that, really being with an in-breath for its full life cycle till it's gone. Being with an out-breath for its full life cycle till it's gone. As you do that, you can't help but notice that uh, the breaths come and go, but the qualities change. You already have seen that, I'm sure. You see that the breath is very heavy and coarse and unpleasant to be breathing and suddenly you're able to concentrate for a few sittings and the breath becomes much more subtle and refined, light, and it's just a joy to be breathing. And then one nasty thought and then the whole house of cards tumbles, change again. And you see it's a different quality now. The breath suddenly tightens up, gets shorter. It's, uh, there's resistance in the body. It becomes more coarse. And it isn't so pleasant to be breathing. And so you can uh, deepen your understanding of the law of impermanence just on breathing. It can go take you quite a ways by just seeing this realm of the breath and just see from breath to breath, from breath moment to breath moment, see the law of impermanence at work. And then we do that, we go through all the 16 steps. Uh, seeing the, let's uh, go to the, the second set of four feelings. Uh, if there are deep feelings like rapture, this is an important thing to understand. Uh, from a practical point of view. Let's say your concentration gets strong over the next few days and you enter into rapture or deep peace. Uh, at that point, and you may not want to do it, that's why you might need a spiritual friend. You might not see us as a friend at that point, but we, but we are. Uh, when you start to taste such deep rapture, joy, peace, uh, you must, you get attached to it. There's no way to escape that. It is so pleasurable that you want it to go on forever, and you really, uh, Vipassana, what's that? <laughs> There's no interest in seeing the arising and passing away of this, that, and the other, or uh, coming to the end of my suffering and breaking through and becoming a Buddha. Why? I don't want that. I'm happy right now. Breathing in and breathing out. Ah, oh, so peaceful. Such joy. Oh. And then someone says, a voice from the peanut gallery, just notice that it changes. Focus in on the peace, focus in on the joy. And the breath now goes into the background, sort of. So that now the primary focus is on that feeling, on bliss, on peace, on joy. And as you observe it, uh, of course you're going to see it change, and eventually it will disappear, guaranteed. Because <coughs> it's impermanent. 
And so then we become disappointed, we suffer, we, uh, become, uh, we become graspy, we try to get it back and we suffer even more. And so you can take that as an intentional contemplation and that would be the application now of, of wisdom to this very fulfilling silent state, very fulfilling joyous state. And you observe it carefully and you see that, yeah, it's impermanent. Look at that. It does, it's great, but it doesn't last. Now, what's, what can come out of that, the, the lesson there, the kind of learning that can come out of that, is not that we're not, that we're, now, okay, I'm never going to get blissful again, I'm never going to be peaceful again, because what happens? It just goes, and, it goes away on you. Can't even count on it. No. Uh, it's quite valuable to be able to drop into a peaceful state, into a joyful state kind of nourish yourself, refresh the heart, and then come out and either into the world or into uh, more investigation. And we don't have to suffer when it comes to an end because little by little, the, the message of impermanence sinks in. It becomes more convincing. And so we're able, we know it's impermanent. That doesn't mean we have to, that it's worthless. It means that it can be fully participated with and in and we can derive the benefit of that experience. And when it becomes time for it to go, we let it go. Now, we, that's an art. We have to learn that, the art of letting go. Because as mentioned, quite naturally, that isn't what we'd want to do. Well, so now we're, we're learning vipassana. And we're also protecting ourselves from getting really stuck in a concentration practice. Which finally doesn't go anywhere. I mean, you even get tired of that. Okay. Or any feelings, really, that are clear, that come up. Any likes and dislikes. Uh, a taste at lunch. It's not limited to sitting. And you start chewing it and tasting it and tasting it, and then it goes away. The taste goes away. The meal goes away. The delicious meal, must, it goes away. But take tastes or uh, anything, really. In fact, uh, a beautiful sight or a beautiful sound, they end. And they're nice feelings while they're happening. Very nice. And there are all kinds of nice feelings in life. And so here the challenge would be, uh, whatever the feeling is, to be with it completely, thoroughly, thoroughly experience it, and notice that it arises and passes away. Notice that it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And an end. Now, in the sutra itself, uh, two very dramatic feelings are, are stressed. One is uh, piti, or rapture, and the other one um, is sukha, or happiness, a kind of peaceful happiness. And there, the, the, the logic of that, and from, the, from a practical point of view, is if you can arouse those feelings, and you can through a concentrated mind, so you experience these very powerful feelings, and then if you can learn how to experience them without getting attached, without suffering as a result, then all the other feelings become much easier to, to establish that kind of freedom, free relationship with. I would say a healthy relationship with an accurate relationship with. Because if things are changing, but we don't live that way, then how could it be anything but suffering? Because we're out of step. If life is constantly changing, 
to attach to things in certain ways is doomed. It's, it's an invitation to suffer. And as we all know, uh, we don't care. We still keep holding on to certain things that we want. We move on to, the, to mind states. And in the mind states, if you recall, it's all the richness of, we th- of what we think of as being our mind. Uh, cravings and aversions and confusion and fear and anger and mourning and sadness and joy and compassion and hate. and All that makes us human is, comes up in the mind. And that, a lot of that is largely what we think of as self-knowledge. It's what we work on when we go into psychotherapy. It's what philosophers talk about sometimes when they're talking about self-knowledge and self-understanding. So here, whatever mind state comes up, we see it arise and pass away. In order to do that, you have to really be able to pay attention to it. You have to really stay with it and see that whatever your mood, uh, as you stay with it, and the the breathing helps you do that. The breath is kind of like an anchor. Breathing in, I'm aware of fear. Breathing out, I'm aware of fear. Staying totally attentive to fear. Hopefully, at this point, our concentration's a little stronger, a little bit more steady. And the breath is kind of like a good friend humming along, right alongside of us. Sometimes it feels more like a unified field of breathing and whatever it is that you're attending to. And it helps. It can help. And we begin to see... Uh, that fear is impermanent. All of these things, now if we go back through all the steps, and I'm not going through each one, but in general I am, we see that no matter what they are, whether it's the length of a breath, whether it's the quality of a breath, whether it's uh, a feeling we have, or any mind state, they arise and pass away, and they lack self. That means it's another way of saying the same thing. We don't own them. They're, they're not under our control. They are, they are phenomena. They're as much a part of nature as the change of the seasons. The mind is just like secretions, right? It's like the, the brain is secreting all these thoughts that come and go, come and thoughts and images and fantasies and uh, symbols and so forth, conversations, memories. It's, we're not controlling that. It's just happening. It's all happening. So we, as we watch it and see it arise and pass away, it becomes very obvious that it, it's not a self. It lacks a core. It's not enduring. It's not autonomous. It's fleeting. It's something that comes and goes and represents itself as being much more than what it is. And then when we identify with it, we make it seemingly into a self. But that's our concoction, our creation. That's called delusion. We do the same with fear. We make an owner out of the fear. I am afraid. And the practice is cutting through that. There is fear. And there's the seeing of that fear. But the owner, the owner of it is not to be found with careful looking. Or we see that, well, what do you mean the owner is not to be found? I'm afraid. Okay. Well, what's that? And then you look carefully and you see it's a thought. I am afraid. And as you see it, it falls away. And then there's just fear. 
or even when you're breathing, you've been practicing this more than you realize. In moments when you're really attentive and breathing in and breathing out, is there any me or mine to be found? It's just breathing. That's why sometimes from that simple process can come a lot of wisdom when you realize there's just breathing happening. Where's the breather? There's no one who's doing the breathing. Yes, there is. It's me. And then you look at it and it's again, it's thought. It's an idea, a deeply rooted one, a deeply held one. Okay, why bother? Why bother to get to know all these states, to get to know suffering, dukkha in its many forms, and to begin to see that they, they arise and pass away and they lack self? In a nutshell, so that we can let go. When we begin to see the true nature of the mind and body, little by little it becomes easier to not get attached. It becomes easier to fully experience what's happening without either clinging or pushing away. That's something that grows out of practice. Your intellectual understanding is only a start. That's like a menu to a meal. But it doesn't end there. Each person, each one of us, must do it by ourselves. You know your mind in a way that I could never know your mind. It's intimate work. It's personal work. It's first-hand learning. And all the books that you've read about the self or about Buddhist and psychological and otherwise, they have their value. But at a certain point, maybe those authors have solved their problems, like the Buddha. But they haven't solved ours. So the only way is it, it requires direct experience. The actuality of who it is we think we are from moment to moment, arising and passing away. When there's a grasping and holding on to something, and that's of course what brings suffering, if everything's changing and we're holding on, look carefully the next time you find yourself doing that. See if there isn't me and mine in it. It's either I'm the one who's, and whatever it is you're holding on to, or what you're holding on to belongs to me. Or it doesn't belong to me. I don't want this. Or this is not me. Either way, we're trapped. And so uh, the continuous seeing of arising and passing away, arising and passing away, and quite humbly, just seeing it in a breath, seeing it in a mood, seeing it in a bodily state, little by little, we begin to uh, fully experience in a convincing, compelling, and vivid way that we are impermanence itself. It's not that we're a solid being who is subject to impermanence. There's nothing outside of the process. It's all impermanence. Now, many things can help us with this letting go. All kinds of reflections are useful. Reflections on great civilizations that have come and gone, ancient civilizations, no longer here. Reflections on uh, close and loved people who, who have died. Uh, in my own case, I had a very powerful experience just seeing uh, a cafeteria that I used to go into almost every day in Cambridge. And then I went away for a few months on a retreat and I came back and it was a, a very fashionable dress shop. Uh, and I went inside. You know, the and I just, oh, and then I, I went, in my mind, went back and forth. This is where the, you know, the counter was, and this is where the grill was, and, and now there is a mannequin, and, now, and this was this, and that, and I went back and forth. It was a very powerful experience to understand that it's empty. 
It's not that it's not real. That store is very real to the owner and the people who come in, who get satisfaction, who buy dresses and so forth. Before that, it was what it was. You know, people would go in and get food and a cup of coffee, a donut and a cup of coffee. The real pleasures in life, they're all gone now. <laughs> Kids are not allowed to have coffee. The donuts are not whole grain. No more fun. Deep experiences can really move us along as well uh, as these fine-grained kinds of attention. Uh, one that I had recently, it's ongoing. Um, my father is now in a nursing home with, with Alzheimer's disease. And uh, there's no question that my practice has deepened uh, because I have certainly been not only willing, but it's been necessary. And I've been, uh, I can't separate really the practice from from a way of living, because it's the most, it's the way that I live now. When you do it long enough, you see it's not really a method. That's just at the beginning. After a while, all that scaffolding falls away, and it's just how you live. At any rate, to make a long story short, uh, my father has been in this nursing home since December, and he's totally, uh, a total malcontent. He's the nursing home malcontent. And uh, the nurse called me up uh, because he's so he has this feeling of being trapped that he rides around in his wheelchair at top speeds from one end of the nursing home to the other. And if you go into this nursing home, most people are, uh, they're not riding around at any speed. They're just asleep or, you know, in a vegetative state or you can, you can imagine, probably many of you have seen nursing homes, it's a typical one. And here's my father zipping in and zipping out uh, at 87 years old with no colon, no intestines, diabetes, his legs don't work, uh, he can't hear, and, he can, uh, and his mind is totally confused. Not totally, but very confused. And so the nurse uh, called me to come because he and I have a very good relationship, and we talk and he calms down. But in the process, I learned something. I started to, I asked her, I said, uh, I only see him when I visit. What's he like? I mean, what is it like during the rest of the week? And she said, well, he, since the day he came in, he has not accepted the fact that he's in a nursing home. I said, well, is that unusual? He said, no. Uh, for many people, it takes about a year before they accept the fact that they are not going to be back with their husband or wife or whoever. Uh, they're never going to an apartment or a job that uh, this is it. And I said, well, where does my father stack up? And I said, well, he's very extreme. And then she gave me some, an interesting insight. She said, you know, what it seems like to me is that uh, part of it is his memory, which of course is very difficult. It's uh, poor, very poor, although he does remember certain things. And it's interesting what he does remember. Uh, what he, she says, each day, it's as if he hasn't put in all the other days and learned that he's in a nursing home in a wheelchair and that this is the way his life is, that he needs around-the-clock care. And she said, so when he gets up in the morning, we're always amazed. It's like, he's so fresh with like, when am I getting out of here? And you know, I, uh, I want a, an apartment. I, I have a job waiting for me. And uh, he goes on, and the nurses said, we're just, we can't believe it. Every day, uh, it's like none of the, he hasn't learned anything from the other days. He is starting to. I mean, that the last visit, uh, you can 
uh, keep that up just so long. But uh, when I heard that, um, I reflected on, of course, I saw that. Every time I visit him, it's true. It's as if no matter how much I, uh, and I tell him the truth, that you know this is where he must stay. He can't live with my mother anymore. And he, and he can't hold a job uh, because it's necessary to have around-the-clock care and attention. And then he gets quiet and listens, and then he understands. Of course, he, at some level, of course he knows. But in watching it, that since that time, in watching it, uh, it's the, my understanding of attachment uh, and impermanence is developed beyond what I could put into words. Moreover, when I've come back to Cambridge, and some of you, and listening to interviews, when people come in with their things, it is so obvious after seeing my, because my father's is so obvious. That is, he's in a nursing home. He's 87 years old. He can't do anything. Almost on a daily basis, a different capacity falls away. You know, uh, the most poignant was one time, just before taking him to a nursing home, uh, I was trying to help him dress in the bathroom and he couldn't put his undershorts on and he looked at me he wasn't sad or anything it was like like a naturalist observing he said look at that isn't that something can't even put my shorts on anymore and it wasn't self-pity or anything it was just a, like an observation that's change he was a very spry energetic person and seeing the overwhelming fact that he is in this home and that this is his home and that he's not going to be leaving and that he doesn't have a job waiting for him and that day in and day out negating that truth and each day coming at it again for I want to get out of here uh, and it's so irrational it makes no sense why is he doing that he suffers immensely by doing that when he calms down and accepts it's a little when my sister and I talked to him. He's peaceful and is much more, we have conversations like the old days, sometimes for a while. And then it starts again. How do I get out of here? Now, if there were some way to get out of here, that kind of fighting spirit would be terrific. You know, like a convict to escape. Maybe he would escape. But there is no way out. And then when I come back to Cambridge and I hear people, I hear people, including myself, uh, it's the same old attachment, same old suffering, over and over and over and over and over again, going round and round and round and round. Essentially, things are this way, but they shouldn't be. I don't want them to be this way, but they are. But they shouldn't be, but they are. <laughs> but they shouldn't be. <laughs> That's why we can't let any people who are non-Buddhist into this place. <laughs> because out of compassion for us, it's hard enough with all of us who have some faith to some degree in these teachings. Okay, um, tomorrow at the, the sitting after breakfast, I'll be more concrete in the instructions as to how to practice from here on in. I think with this as a background, um, then the, the, the suggestions as to how each one of you can practice because it's not standardized. You can each find your own way of practicing both shamatha, calm, and vipassana, insight. Uh, weaving them together in, in a harmonious way.
Okay, thank you. This talk was given by Larry Rosenberg at Insight Meditation Society on July 12, 1993. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.